Chapter 14, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 14 Growth of the Church. Part 3. The Salian Franks were a powerful Teutonic tribe, or rather federation, who, pressing southwards from their earlier seat on the lower Rhine, had taken possession of the fertile plains on the Meuse and the Samber, and had thence extended their boundaries to the Somme. This people was led in the latter part of the fifth century by a chieftain of extraordinary power, Chlodwig, who overthrew the Romans under Syagrius in northeastern Gaul, and made himself master of the country up to the Seine. He married Clotilda, the orphan daughter of the murdered Burgundian king, Chilperic, who endeavored to win over her pagan spouse to the Catholic Christianity in which she had been reared. But Chlodwig found no satisfaction in the doctrine of a crucified Savior, though he did very reluctantly consent to the baptism of his infant son. War, however, brought to pass that which peaceful persuasion had in vain attempted. The Alemanni, a still pagan tribe, had by great prowess in a series of struggles established themselves in a wide and fruitful territory on both banks of the Upper and Middle Rhine. Desiring still to extend their territory, they invaded that of the neighboring Ripuarian Franks. The pressing danger led the Frankish tribes to forget their internal dissensions, and Chlodwig advanced against his warlike foes at the head of the whole force of the nation. The opposing armies met near Zulpik, about twenty miles west of Vaughan. The battle was long and bloody, and at last the Franks, after terrible losses, seemed to waver. In this strait, Schladwig bethought him of the words of his wife, who had told him of an almighty god, unlike those of wood and stone, and vowed that if he conquered, he would worship Christ, who gives victory to those who trust in him. After this the battle raged with new fury, but the Franks gained the upper hand. The king of the Alemanni himself fell, and his death caused panic among his warriors, who fled in confusion towards the Rhine. Flushed with victory, Chlodwig returned to Reims, where he was met at the gate by his queen Clotilda and the archbishop Remigius, and conducted through the crowded streets to the cathedral, where he bowed his haughty head to receive baptism from the hands of the archbishop. Three thousand of his chief men were received into the Catholic Church by baptism after the example of their leader. A portion of the army, however, refused the yoke of Christ and renounced their allegiance to Chlodwig, but returned after some time to his sovereignty. It must be confessed that Chlodwig's baptism did not confer upon him the Christian graces of gentleness and mercy. He remained what he had been before, bold, able, cruel, and crafty as after his conversion he showed little or nothing of the spirit of Christianity, it has frequently been supposed that it was a mere matter of policy intended to conciliate the Catholic inhabitants of Gaul and to give him a pretext for attacking the Arian Goths. That it had this effect there is no doubt. Still, though he did not understand by conversion that change of heart which we associate with the word, there seems no reason to doubt that, after his rough fashion, he was sincerely devoted to Christ who had helped him in his need, and that he was proud of his position as the most powerful champion of the faith in Europe. 
he is not a man whom we should readily suspect of hypocrisy in religion, though towards men he was certainly capable of bad faith. But little is known of the conversion of the conquered Alemanni. The Franks do not seem to have attempted to bring them by compulsion to the Catholic faith, but it was probably by their influence that it was diffused in the conquered territory. Their earliest teacher is said to have been Fridolin, a noble Irishman, the reputed founder of the monastery of Secondgen, on an island in the Rhine above Basel. Certainly, when the Alemannic Code of Laws was written up about 630, the nation appears to be Christian. The Burgundians, a Teutonic tribe, inhabiting the banks of the Elbe, were driven westward by the pressure of the Huns, and in the end came to occupy a considerable territory in southeastern Gaul. They had been converted under Catholic influence, and lived on a footing of Christian brotherhood with the conquered race. They seem, however, to have lapsed into Arianism. These also were overthrown by Chlodwig in a great battle near Dijon, and twenty-three years later their dominions were added to the Frankish kingdom. Meantime they had been brought back to Catholicism by the strenuous efforts of Avitus, the famous bishop of Vienne, and an orthodox council was held at Epeon in the year 511, to regulate the affairs of the Burgundian church. To a man of Chlodwig's character, it was natural to regard love for the Catholic church and the treading down of Aryan peoples as one and the same thing. The West Goths occupied a large portion of southern Gaul. I cannot bear, said the Frankish king, that these Aryans should be masters in a part of Gaul. Let us go and, with God's help, conquer them, and bring their land into our own power. He conquered them, and took possession of the country up to the Pyrenees, thus becoming lord over almost the whole of Gaul. Beyond the Pyrenees, the West Goths, who had been practically masters of the country from the beginning of the fifth century, were still Arian, but the older inhabitants retained their Catholic faith, and were sufficiently numerous and powerful to be a constant danger to their Arian lords, a danger which was much increased when the Frankish champions of Catholicism extended their dominions to the Spanish frontier, for the Catholic Spaniards would be the natural allies of a Catholic invader. Various attempts were made by the Arian kings to compel their subjects to adopt to their own creed and enter their own church, in vain. At last, King Recared, under the guidance of Leander, the excellent bishop of Seville, took the opposite policy. In a council summoned by himself at Toledo in the year 589, he declared that he felt himself obliged, for the honor of God and the welfare of his people, to receive fully the orthodox faith in the Holy Trinity on behalf of himself and the nation, including the Suevi who were among his subjects. From this time Arianism made but feeble attempts to lift its head in Spain. Thus, by the end of the sixth century, Catholic princes ruled from the Rhine to the Atlantic. Arianism was indeed almost extinct in Europe, except that the Lombards, who in 568 had established themselves in the northern region of Italy, did not relinquish their Arianism and paganism until the following century. Rulers like Theoderic, the East Goth, had found it possible to live on good terms with their Catholic subjects, but they had not attempted to unite them in one polity with their own nation. With the Franks we first find that fusion of races which in the end caused the conquering Teutons to adopt the rustic Roman speech of the conquered Gauls. From the time of Chlodwig we find men of Teutonic stock in the ministry of the church, 
hitherto the privilege of the Romanized inhabitants. At the Council of Orleans in 511, we find among the thirty-two subscribing bishops two Teutonic names, and at that which was held at the same place thirty-eight years later, eight Teutons appear among the sixty-eight subscribers. Afterwards the proportion becomes higher. But the old Roman cultivation of the Gallican clergy, even in its decay, asserted its power. Indispensable for the conduct of the administration, the bishops became more and more involved in politics and secular business generally. The most remarkable product of the Romano-Gallican cultivation of this period was Gregory of Tours, the Frank Herodotus. Georgius Florentius, who called himself Gregorius after his maternal grandfather, the canonized bishop of Longres, was born about the year 540 of a senatorial family at Arverna, now Clermont-Ferrand. He became deacon in his native town, but his remarkable gifts soon made him conspicuous. The kings employed him in the business of the state, and he was chosen bishop of Tours with the assent of all, high and low, clergy and laity. In his see, while he gave much attention to the secular matters of which he was so distinguished a master, he proved himself a true shepherd of the flock committed to his charge. Tours, the city of St. Martin, was at that time, in fact, the ecclesiastical metropolis of Gaul, and the influence of its able archbishop was felt far and wide. Under King Chilperic, Gregory valiantly defended the rights of the church against the encroachments of secular tyranny. To King Childebert he was counselor and friend in all the difficulties which he had to encounter. He died, much mourned, in the year 594. His history of the Franks, of the greatest value for his own time, is a curious mixture of history and legend. To him, history is the narrative of God's power working in the world, and in this point of view the miracles of the saints are at least as important as the overthrow of those who are without God. The orthodox Chlodwig is always victorious, while heretical kings come to nothing. Gregory desired to write classical Latin, but the country speech which he heard around him frequently betrays itself, and supplies us with interesting examples of the way in which the tongue of old Rome was gradually changed into the modern Romance languages. But as the Roman culture in Gaul died out, bishoprics and abbacies fell into the hands of ruder men. Ecclesiastics received benefices from the crown which were a cause of embarrassment, for as the crown often claimed the power of recalling what it had given, a system of grants tended to make the prelates subservient to the king. On the other hand, when the crown, as was sometimes the case, sought the aid of the bishops against its unruly feudatories, they in their turn naturally used the opportunity to gain concessions for themselves. In the election of bishops, the choice of the clergy and people was little regarded, during the Merovingian period, in comparison with the will of the king. The lands of the church were subject to tribute, and the cultivators bound to service in war. Even bishops took the field and bore arms. Councils were not assembled without the consent of the king, and their canons had no force without his sanction. And as ecclesiastical affairs came to be dealt with in the great council of the nation, where both clergy and laity were present, synods of the clergy alone declined in importance. The bishops were, however, very powerful persons. They exercised in many cases judicial functions, and their excommunication was much dreaded both for its spiritual and its temporal consequences. Over their own clerks in particular, who were frequently drawn from the vassal class, 
for the free warriors did not generally find the clerical state attractive, they exercised almost despotic power, but they were themselves responsible to the king. If one of us, said Gregory of Tours to Chilperic, turns aside from the way of righteousness, he can be corrected by thee, but if thou turnest aside, who shall admonish thee? In this state of things, as may be readily supposed, the power of the see of Rome was little regarded. The Pope was reverenced as the chief bishop of Christendom, but in the period with which we are now concerned, there is little trace of his interference with the Gallican Church. End of chapter 14, part 3